0: Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with
1: Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas.
0: And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian.
1: On this special Christmas Eve episode, we're discussing the birth of Jesus as told in Luke 2, 1-20. We talk about the imperial setting of this story, which takes place during the reigns of Augustus, Herod, and Quirinius, but announces the good news of a different Lord and Savior who brings peace to all rather than to the few. We ponder the way the message makes its way into the world through an unwed mother, a band of shepherds, and an assortment of people who happen to be awake in the middle of the night, leaving the official power structures unaware of the fact that the world has been fundamentally changed. And we talk about how this story challenges us to pay attention to who we listen to, where we look for good news, and what divine announcements we might sleep through because we've gotten too comfortable. Merry Christmas, y'all, and thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's our special Christmas Eve episode today.
0: Would you like me to sing the song from Peanut's Christmas, yes. Dear Christmas time is here. <laughs> something, something, cheer. This is so
1: beautiful. La 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 la
0: la 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 la. That's the end. That's
1: all I'm singing for you. You're gonna <laughs> do the do 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 do. Do, do, oh. do, 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 do. Is that just
0: the Christmas one or is that like all the ones? I don't know.
1: That's a good question. It's in the Christmas one for sure. I say that and I haven't seen the Christmas one in many years. I tried to show it to my uh, daughter last year, I think, when she was five. And she just found it kind of sad and boring. And I was like, you know what? Charlie Brown is kind of a pathetic guy. And I guess maybe that's yeah. his whole point. It's true. But that's I was just true. like, man, people actually like you if you weren't so down on yourself. Like, you, you could be. And then he reminded me of me Aww. when I was young. And then I was just Aww, sad and reflective. Maybe that's why you
0: liked him.
1: <laughs> then I had a long talk with my therapist.
0: Uh-huh. Good.
1: Clearly, I have not finished processing this.
0: I understand. Well, I'll stop singing <laughs> triggering songs for you. I want to be a Schroeder, but I'm just,
1: I'm a Charlie Brown. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anywho, yeah. well, that was a depressing. Anywho,
0: that was kind of a depressing <laughs> opening. However, we're reading the, the version of this story that is told in that. That's why I'm saying that song, right? We're reading Luke yes. 2.
1: Yes, we could read it in the, I don't know. I think he uses probably the revised standard version or something.
0: I don't think it's the King James. You don't King think he James. uses like King James? No, he doesn't he, use King James? He might. I'm not
1: sure. I have actually never gone back and looked to, to see which one it is. But we're gonna modernize and use the Common English Bible today. <laughs> okay. Amy, we haven't talked about this text. So every year the narrative lectionary text uses this text, which is, I mean, if you're gonna use a Christmas Eve text, like this is the one. We're in Luke 2, 1 to 20. And it's the kind of, yeah, it's the it's the peanuts one. It's the it's the best known one. Mm-hmm. And it appears every year in the narrative lectionary. And so we did this one, I think, the last time. We did it twice. We did it in 2019 when we when we were yet still in LDR. Mm-hmm. and then we did it in 2020 and then we haven't done it since mm-hmm. so we just kind of decided maybe it's time for an update so here we are yeah
0: i mean like we're in our a second official cycle with NLDR like our own right we are right. just yeah, sort yeah. of getting to that and so with we're, we're right? yeah what did i call it NLDR Oh yeah, no, that's not right. Yeah, narrative lectionary, <laughs> and so we're we are we're doing texts that we have done before, and it's true. so why not do this one? It's a very nice text.
1: No, no, I was, like I was making the yeah, uh, that's exactly true. Uh, preachers who preach every Christmas Eve have to figure out something to say about this text every single year, and I found that very difficult. But here we are, four years later, and the world has changed, and we have changed. The text has not changed. And mm. so we're going to see how it interacts with, with us in our world
0: today, here, even now, as even we speak. Even now. Yeah, we sure are.
1: Last week, we were in Luke chapter one, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. And so now we're headed into the birth of Jesus story. Do you think we need to catch anybody up on anything? I mean, like six months have passed, maybe? Mary got pregnant. There was a whole thing. <laughs> like there was a there was a whole thing that we'll talk about next year, I guess, in the Luke cycle where the angel comes and talks to Mary and all that jazz.
0: Hmm.
1: But I we can't really talk about that too too much because there was a double talk.
0: podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so here, here are my questions just to orient myself. This probably would not be a problem for any of our Christian listeners, but I had to remind myself <laughs> reading this text. That the baby, where it's a different family now. Like chapter one was (laughs) over. Chapter one is over. Chapter one is over. That had two parents and a baby boy. Yes. Now we're starting chapter two, two different parents, different baby boy. Okay. That is true. But you're saying it's about six months apart. So so John and Jesus are about the same age. They're about the
1: same age in Luke's story. So they're two different couples, but they're Mary and Elizabeth are related to each other. And so mm. Elizabeth is like Mary's older. I think she's a, I don't know, cousin. I don't know what she would be. And in in, this, in South Carolina where I'm from, we just, like, everybody's a cousin. And we don't really count them too <laughs> close. And so
0: yeah, the details don't matter.
1: So Mary's quite young. She's probably right at the age uh, around puberty. Uh, so she's probably, I don't know, 12, 14. Elizabeth, as we remember from last week, was old old enough that it was a surprise that she was able to get Mm -hmm. pregnant. And so we've got Mm a, like an age difference. So maybe we would think of her as like a great Mm. aunt or something. In any case, when Mary discovers that she's going to have a baby because Gabriel shows up and tells her, so she goes to visit Elizabeth. And when she goes to visit Elizabeth, after she's received this announcement from the angel, Elizabeth's baby, who is John leaps in the womb because the Savior, the mother of the Savior of the world has entered. And so they're close enough together, the, the two kids, that mm-hmm. John was yet still in the womb after Mary had been had, had been announced. So that's where that come, came from. That was probably a longer explanation than you were really looking for. But There it is.
0: No, it's all, it is, because what we didn't read from chapter one last time was the whole part with Mary.
1: Right. Yeah. That'll show up in next year's narrative lectionary cycle, but it's not here this year. Okay. So there we are. Let's talk about the birth of Jesus.
0: Let's do it. Here we go. Let's see what happens. Okay. So
1: our text this week is, uh, I mean, the narrative lectionary gives us uh, two, one to 14, and then in brackets, 15 to 20. But you can't tell the story without the bracketed part. I don't even know why you would do that. And so we're not going to do it. We're going to read the whole thing. We might just keep going. We might read part of (laughs) chapter three. Who knows what's (laughs) about to happen?
0: We're wild.
1: In those days, Caesar Augustus declared that everyone throughout the empire should be enrolled in the tax lists. This first enrollment occurred when Quirinius governed Syria. Everyone went to their own cities to be enrolled. Since Joseph belonged to David's house and family line, He went up from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to David's city called Bethlehem in Judea. He went to be enrolled together with Mary, who was promised to him in marriage and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for Mary to have her baby. She gave birth to her firstborn child, a son, wrapped him snugly, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room.
0: There's, like, a lot of big things that happen in here that the, the, the <laughs> narrative is just, like, do-do-do-do-do. Like, every sentence, I have these, like, exclamation parts and the mar- explanation point. You know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> like, what?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to talk about yeah. some of
1: those. It, it, it really does sort of soft sell the birth of the Messiah, right? It's just, like, the first half of verse 7. While she was there, <laughs> she gave birth to a son. And that mm-hmm. was, like, there, there it is. That's you know, fine. There he is. Yeah, and so there's this whole, like, But there's a lot going on contextually here that sets the stage for this birth.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm going to ask you at some point what your exclamation points are because I'm so interested to know what you found exclamatory, exclaim worthy. But I just want to start out by talking about the, we get some view of what's happening, at least in Luke's telling, Mm -hmm. in this sort of broad sweep. Augustus is the Caesar, and Quirinius is the governor, and there's a tax census that's taking place in this telling all over the empire. So the birth of this little baby in Bethlehem is set within this empire-wide context, which is just such an interesting way to tell the story. What thoughts did you have about about that setting?
0: Well, you know, in in the NRSV, it says the Emperor Augustus decreed that all the world should be registered. Yes. Which really honestly gave me chills.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, look, it's not like I don't participate in the census, you know, right. here in the states, I do and it and it and it doesn't make me nervous. I maybe it makes some other people nervous depending on their vulnerability in the world. I don't I don't know, but but here just the idea that like you must register with the state. Yeah. And this whole sort of orientation towards like, that's, that's what makes us count. Like that's, that, that count and that like tracking from that empire is, is sort of like the, that's where this story starts. And it feels so at odds with the story that's unfolding sort of within it.
1: I had not read it that way, but you're exactly right. That the sort of. To be registered with the government does kind of have this surveillance feel to it.
0: I don't know if I'm if I'm like projecting that. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but you said you said we're reading it in, you know, we're different people now, the world is different, we're different. And so yeah. that's that's what I feel. I I feel surveilled.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's totally reasonable. And I think that's probably the way people felt in the Roman Empire as well. The way the CEB gives it is to be enrolled in the tax lists which I think probably really is the primary purpose of the enrolling. But, Mm -hmm. you know, keeping track of your citizens, like, is important, especially so you can extract money from them. Mm -hmm. There might be other reasons as well, like military conscription and and all sorts of things. Uh, But this, at the very least, this is being set within the empire's desire to extract money from its citizens, of which Joseph, not even its citizens, its inhabitants, Because, you know, quite a lot of people who are paying taxes to Rome are not actually given the benefits of citizenship. They're just subjects. Right. Right. So it's a really interesting way to tell it. The kind of, I don't know, controversially, famously, the timing is off in this Mm -hmm. little set of time stamps. Mm -hmm. Augustus Octavian, Caesar Augustus, was the emperor from... 44 BCE until 14 CE. So that works nicely. King Herod, who we get here, was the king from 40-ish BCE. He died in 4 BCE. Mm-hmm. And then Quirinius, who is said to be the governor here, wasn't actually the governor until the year 6 CE. So there's like mm-hmm. a 10-year gap in in which Quirinius and Herod are said to overlap here. But in fact, they, they didn't by 10 years. Yeah. So there's some sort of an issue
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: We also don't have record of a, an empire-wide census like this, mm-hmm. but we do have record of a census taken by Quirinius within Judea itself when he comes to power in the year six. And so it's not, it's just, it's not that this is totally like fantasy. It's just right. that the way it's told is a little
0: right, jumpy. But- Yes, the the memory of it is is not like this is not a history book. Yeah, this is this is the memory of it, and like memories, they get a little fakakta is the you know,
1: word for <laughs> yeah, it. I like they, that. one. You know, a
0: little, a little messed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Do you do it like Luke has laid out? We talked about last time that he's trying to set forward an orderly account. Mm. Do you read this as just he's doing the best he can to place it contextually? Or do you think mm. if it's not historical, then what is it like? Why would he tell it this way? Do you unpack mm. that at all? Like why set it in all of this kind of
0: Gosh, political mess? That is such an interesting question because it does again sort of raise up like man, we want this to be orderly, <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> and we're trying and we're tr- and of course like you know if the question that's in my mind that I think people at least used to wonder, I don't know if it's still the case, but that there was this question of like, why would Joseph who lived in Galilee have been in Bethlehem? Right. So it's a question. And so it's, you know, like in the, in the Hebrew Bible, when you have a question about things like that, you sort of fill in like, what's a sort of reasonable, I mean, sometimes not so reasonable in rabbinic stories, but what is a reason that it could have happened? And this is a perfectly plausible, reason in sort of the realm of like historical fiction. Yeah. So I I don't know if, I don't know, I I mean, I I can't venture to say whether Luke is is trying to create something plausible for the reader or if Luke actually believes this to be true. Yeah. Do you have a feeling about that? I think what
1: you're saying is really important. It seems to be the case that Jesus, historically speaking, was known to have grown up in Nazareth. Nazareth isn't really a thing in terms of messianic prophecy. And so then the question of, well, why do you have a Messiah from Nazareth? Both Luke and Matthew are then at pains to say, well, Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, mm-hmm. in fulfillment of Micah 5, 2, I think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But they do it in different ways. We we talked about, I think, we talked about Matthew's story last year, in which Mary and Joseph seem to actually live in Bethlehem, Herod tries to kill Jesus. And so they flee to Egypt. And then on the way home, they become refugees in Nazareth. So he's born in Bethlehem, grows up in Nazareth, but Joseph actually wasn't from there. Here we have a different way in which they live in Nazareth. They go to Bethlehem for the census, and then they go back to Nazareth. So both Matthew and Luke are trying to account for those two details, which I take to be sort of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting though, that both of them in their own way set it within sort of political turmoil within the Roman Empire and the region of Judea, Mm. which in both cases casts the birth of this one who is going to be called savior and Lord, which are two terms that the emperor used for himself is told within the context of this imperial control. I don't think that's accidental. I don't think that's just like, let's tell a story that gets the facts right. I think it's, you cannot tell the story of the birth of Jesus without the backdrop of the political machinations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of Augustus and Herod mm-hmm. and Quirinius. That's what I think.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: You were talking about the fact that Joseph heads to Bethlehem. The way it's told here is that for the purpose of the census, Everyone mm-hmm. had to go back to the town where their family was from, mm-hmm. and so Joseph is the mm, the wayward son who has moved to Arkansas. And yeah. whenever, <laughs> whenever there's a holiday, <laughs> say,
0: he's moved quite far away. He has. How far
1: away is Nazareth from Bethlehem? It's like
0: eighty-five miles.
1: Yeah, through that Samaria. Is quite far, actually, I mean, yeah,
0: that is quite far. He he really traveled.
1: Yeah back at Thanksgiving and again coming up here at Christmas my family drives you know like 10 or 12 hours to South Carolina and then 10 or 12 hours back like
0: I can relate yeah. I
1: can relate to what Joseph
0: is doing I can't too but I mean I can't imagine this was super common at the time I mean what do I know but you know they they didn't have like iPads to give the kids in the back of the car. <laughs> yeah, or, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah. 85 miles by foot is like quite a
1: It's a long situation. journey. Yeah. yeah. I don't remember the last time I walked five miles, let alone 85 miles. I should probably exercise more. <laughs> <laughs> good. In any case, the long journey
0: mm-hmm.
1: to get back to Bethlehem. You know, Bethlehem has such a resonance for Christian readers because of this. And Luke is sort of suggesting it has some resonance also for his readers. He calls it David's city, Bethlehem in Judea. I'm just curious, like, what do you think we're supposed to hear there? And how do you think his audience might have heard that?
0: I mean, you know, it's, it is the city of David. It's the city where David is from. Um, and then, and then, you know, in the tradition that the the Messiah will come from the lineage of David, there is, as you mentioned earlier, also in Micah, um, a reference to the fact that this Messiah from the lineage of David will come from the city of David. So I, I would imagine all of that stuff is in the minds of a Jewish audience.
1: So we've established that Joseph is in the line of David, which means that Jesus mm-hmm. is in the line of David. My mm-hmm. students then will always say, but Joseph isn't actually Jesus's father. So is Jesus
0: Mm -hmm. actually in the line of David? Mm, Good question. Good question.
1: Because Mary seems to be from a priestly line if she's related to Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. So it's a fair question. My answer to my students is that Joseph is legally Jesus's father, even if he's not biologically Jesus's father. And that legal relationship is the only one that really matters. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's not, I don't think it's a super important question, nor a super great answer, but there it is. So you hear that one thing, this baby is in the line of David and you hear he's born in Bethlehem, which Micah has told us is the place where the Messiah is to be born. Yeah. Can you just talk to me a little bit about Mary? She's promised in marriage. The the traditional language is betrothed to Joseph. She's pregnant. She's traveling 85 miles. Talk to me about Mary
0: I mean there's a lot of exclamation points in the margin of my <laughs> text here. I mean first even the I- the idea that they're like traveling alone together before they're married it feels a little bit scandalous to me. Yeah. <laughs> like on an 85 mile trip. So yeah. like it it you know their their lives are quite intertwined here. It seems a little bit um surprising that it that they're not just married at this point right and then they just throw in the fact here that she's pregnant yeah and the text makes no comment about it, it yeah, yeah, you know it <laughs> you know you know ain't by ya, no problem she's pregnant and they're okay fine and now they're gonna go on an 85 mile walk okay cool cool <laughs> yes That's great and then i mean we haven't even gotten to her actually delivering the child yet but there's a there are a lot of Kind of shocking drops of information yeah. here. That it seems like Luke thinks his his readers already know. I mean, even just oh, the fact that it just says like Joseph also went down from the town. I was like, who's Joseph? Have we <laughs> yeah. had have we met Joseph?
1: Yeah, we did. We did get a, just a briefest of mentions of him, which you might remember from when we did this text <laughs> three years ago uh, in uh, one twenty six. We just got that. Mary was engaged to a man named Joseph. And then we get that whole angelophany with uh, with Gabriel. So, yeah, but that's I mean, all lot, we know about him. A
0: lot happens after that. Who remembers yes, yes, Joseph? Yes. Nobody, or clearly not me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Joseph. Sweet I mean, I remember him later. I don't know. It seems like either Luke is intentionally under... Playing all this stuff, or yeah. he's just assuming that his reader already knows.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, part of the story. So this story was so well known by this time that he just got to give the barest of outlines, and we can fill in the details ourselves.
0: I would think so.
1: It is interesting that he spent a kind of a long time about Caesar and Herod and Quirinius and the taxes and the traveling, mm-hmm. and then this part, which seems so much more like story-worthy is just Mm -hmm. told really quickly. And so either he already thinks that we know that story or he doesn't actually think that part is all that urgent to tell. But it's interesting to think about, like... And I mean, Mary... Mary gets more attention in Luke's gospel than any place else, really. But her experience of being a pregnant woman traveling 85 miles Mm. does really not get any attention at all. You know, when we were... Pregnant with our, when my wife was pregnant with our son, we tried to travel back to South Carolina in a car like three months before she was due. And our doctor was like, I don't know. (laughs) You know, and there's like, there's hospitals and like all the things, like all the way. And so she's pregnant enough that the baby's actually going to be born while they're, spoiler alert, while they're in Bethlehem.
0: She is just like, Emblematic of vulnerability upon vulnerability. Yes. She is, I mean, just to be traveling at this time in history is to be vulnerable. Yes. They seem to be somewhat outside of social norms because they're traveling together as engaged folks who are not yet married and she's pregnant, but not yet married. Yeah. And then go to go on and say, like, oh, and then it's time for the baby to be born. By the way, there was nowhere to stay. So she's just going to have the baby outside and now she's a mother to a new baby. Like, I just can't imagine. It's hard to imagine a series of events that would be more vulnerable than this. And it just, it feels so, I don't know, like, really in contradistinction to the idea that, like, the state is going to conduct an orderly registering of all the people. And, like, meanwhile, orderly nothing. Like, there's nothing orderly about (laughs) about this story. The, like, total vulnerability and, honestly, like, chaos of what... What this journey must feel like for them, yeah, it is very different.
1: That's so helpful, Amy. And you know, I'm not even sure. I don't even know why Mary would have to be present in Bethlehem to register to pay taxes because it's it's Joseph's town. It's yeah. jo- like it seems to me like Joseph's the one who actually needs to be registered as the like head of the household. I, what you're making me think about is just the extent to which in this story and in the world today these sort of broad-reaching government policies often don't take into account the specifics, the vulnerabilities of people that especially that are in positions and vulnerable positions within society. Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, we need the numbers we need the names but these are real people's stories yeah and they are. I mean, this is a complicated story, but there's all sorts of stories like this story.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, yes, not everyone has given birth to the Messiah, but there are all kinds (laughs) of stories like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. That when you actually zoom in on the human lives who are impacted by these proclamations. Yeah, it's, it's complicated.
1: I don't know if Luke is doing this on purpose. I think he might be. But it really like when we when you talk about it this way, it really does draw out that like the story of the birth of the Messiah is the story of a baby being born in a context of extreme vulnerability within mm-hmm. the backdrop of a powerful government and empire that is not paying attention to vulnerabilities. And then you get this baby whose titles are gonna be the same titles that Caesar has. And mm-hmm. There's a contrast that's very clearly here that God is amongst these vulnerable people like Mary who are being, you know, manipulated or controlled, or at least like their lives are being dictated by this powerful external force. Luke does not go to any extremes to like make that point for us, but the way he tells it, if you read it carefully, like you're doing really does make that contrast pretty apparent. Mm. you were talking about the birth just a minute ago and I mean all we get is while they were there the time came for Mary to have her baby and so she gave birth to her firstborn son and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them you talked a little bit about the outdoorness of that and the Mm. vulnerability of that are there are there other things about that little birth scene that you want to draw out
0: Okay. My translation is wrapped him in bands of cloth, which sounds really like <laughs> sort of zombie-like. But they- <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I always heard it as uh, swaddling cloths mm. or something yes. like that.
0: Yes. But I don't know what swaddling cloths are. So maybe they are little bands of cloth.
1: I think they actually I'm- were in the ancient world. Like you would wrap the baby. Like I never understood what that really meant until we had our kids. And then they're like, like yes. crazy, like their little legs and arms are flying every place. And so you just Tie their legs down, or tie you tie their them, down. You tie
0: them up. That is the thing. They you stop do. smacking yes. themselves
1: in the face and then they're very happy. And they're but like. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the CEB wrapped him snugly. That sounds all like sweet and yeah, happy. Yeah, no,
0: that like, does sound sweet and happy. Yes.
1: <laughs> the zombie baby.
0: I mean, I think Brains. I just. <laughs> I think I just am doubling down on the same thing I just said. So I won't take a long time to say it, but it just feels very like. The things that we are open to when we are outside of a protected environment, like in part, because you have to be, because you don't know what to expect yeah, and you have to just respond to what's happening. Like there's not, you can't plan it and organize it in the same way that, you know, I plan my road trips or like whatever. You just have to be with what happens. And that is, you know, scary and we don't like to do it and all of that. And also- it, I think, opens you up to seeing things that you might not have even noticed before. That that you know we'll see a little bit, maybe a little bit more with the shepherds that are coming up. But yeah, it's like they've uh, they're in this little sort of bubble of ownerlessness, or like mm-hmm. being sort of outside the system within this big mm-hmm. state system. Yeah, I think they need to be. Yeah, but that's kind of more wilderness stuff. Do you? Do you have other other things you want to draw out about this bird? No, I really,
1: I really love that interpretation and the fact that there's no place within the within the place where humans are meant to dwell in this mm. story. There's no mm-hmm. room for a couple that's having a baby. And whether that means, like that word often is translated as in, but sometimes it gets, like in the Greek, that word is sometimes just like a guest space within a house. Mm-hmm. So it may be that all the houses, like all the, all the rooms were full. Mm -hmm. It may be that if you've got a lot of people living in one sort of guest space, like giving birth is awkward for everybody, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And so maybe like the sort of they, they chose to, or they were sent out to a private space. It's not entirely clear, but Jesus is laid in a feeding trough. He's born amongst animals. Mm -hmm. There's something really important about that. There was Jesus was so far to the margins, so far beyond like the imperial center that he wasn't yes. even with people when he was born. He was with farm animals.
0: Yeah.
1: And his, and his you know, mother and father. But I think that's really important. I appreciate your connecting it to the wilderness because, in my experience, like you, my, the way that I picture this in my head, is very much informed by like little manger scenes that Christians often have in our houses or the nativities that people do Mm. at their churches or the sweet little plays that we do where Mary like is, you know, cute and uh, blonde and, blue eyed mm-hmm. and there's a little light gently shining on her face and, and
0: she's not you know, like covered in covered in blood and yeah you know, milk <laughs> exactly all over the place. yeah that's not yeah.
1: there <laughs> so yeah to, to put it back to like no this was a birth that took place in some sort of a barn <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like it's a helpful redirect for for my mental image i appreciate it
0: <laughs> hi y'all it's amy one of your friendly co-hosts And I want to tell you why Bible Worm is important to me. There's a Jewish tradition that Torah study is best done with a partner, a Hevruta, we call it, someone who pushes you beyond where you would have gone on your own. Bobby was essentially my Hevruta for 10 years of grad school, and I've never found a thought partner quite like him, so when he asked if I wanted to read texts together, there was no real thought process before I said yes. The decision to record this podcast the way we do was risky. We don't have a script. We don't pre-talk things. We are thinking together live. And it is my hope that precisely because of that, you feel invited to think along with us. Because everyone needs a Hevruta. And if you don't have one, I hope you will let us be yours. If this way of being in relationship to biblical text speaks to you the way it speaks to me, I hope you'll help sustain us through Patreon at whatever level makes sense for you. There are some nice perks if you need them. Liturgies, videos, monthly discussion groups. This year I've added some recordings of the chanting of these texts that you might hear in a synagogue. Or you can just support us to show your appreciation and help us know that this work matters. Thanks for listening for supporting us however you
1: can. So now we get a scene shift in the next part. The baby has been born, and now we're going to leave that manger, and we're going to move out into the field, picking up in verse 8. Nearby, shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angel stood before them, the Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, Don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great assembly of the heavenly forces was with the angel, praising God. They said, glory to God in heaven and on earth, peace among those whom he favors. All right, let's just start with shepherds. When this little (laughs) section opens, we've got shepherds living in the field, guarding their sheep. How should we think about them?
0: You know, it's, I'm really glad you asked. And I, and I will tell you, I have my own sort of associations or really imaginings of what that is. And also, like, I live in Atlanta. What the heck do I know about shepherds? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I know pretty much nothing. Yeah. Um. So, so with that note, <laughs> I mean, okay, shepherds, here are my associations. In some ways – They are in this, you know, we talked about this like state of vulnerability and like connecting to whatever's happening around you all the time and being attentive to it. And I feel like their job really prepares them well for that because their job is to care for this group of animals. So they are outside. They may have a general plan of what to do for the day, but- like where, you know, where the animals might graze and whatnot, but really their job is to be attuned to dangers that are on the horizon, be attuned to all their sheep, make sure that, you know, they have what they are, what they need to be safe. The fact that they're sleeping outside with, with their flocks. And do you know if that was, do you have any idea if that was like the norm? Is that what shepherds did?
1: I don't actually know now that you say it that way, but I think so, at least some of the time. That when they're out grazing, you know, grazing the sheep, you can't just go home every night, I think. And so yeah. I think this is probably not no, uncommon. I,
0: I guess that, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I wonder, I have this this question in my head about sort of how the extent to which they felt outside of sort of like quote unquote society, the sort yeah. of like the state's society that, that we've been talking about and Not to say that they were like intentionally outcast because I don't know that that's true, but the rhythm of their lives is really, is not according to the marketplace and according to the tax season and according to whatever, it is according to these animals and their flock and the day and the night and the heat and the cool and it's just a very different orientation.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that because it doesn't say that they're sleeping in the field with their sheep. It says that they're, the CEB is they're guarding their sheep at night. Mm. And so there's at least some of them are awake in the middle of the night to make sure that nothing dangerous approaches the sh- the herd, you know. Yeah. And so I think that's exactly right. They're out everybody else is sort of settled in for the night and there's no room in the guest rooms. The shepherds are just up in the middle mm-hmm. of the night watching their sheep. Yeah. I really appreciate your sort of focus on their abilities like their capacity to guard and to keep safe and to direct in the right direction and all of those sorts of things. I think that is important and you know the metaphor of the sheep or I mean it's not a metaphor in David's case. He was a shepherd and yeah. that was that metaphor comes to be used of the king and also of God as the yeah. Lord is my shepherd. And so there is something about that set of abilities that's very important. It is also the case if you trust commentators which I do and I don't know anything about shepherding
0: mm-hmm.
1: that shepherds were viewed with some suspicion in the ancient world uh, in the in the first century they were often seen as sort of unpredictable or shepherding their sheep on other people's land and you know just like mm. I don't know kind of hard scrabble folks that maybe yeah the cultured people that lived in the towns didn't quite always know what to do with. Which is not, I don't mean to impugn the character of shepherds. What I mean to say is, I think we can imagine similar situations in which there are groups of people who are perfectly trustworthy and responsible people with all the right gifts to be leaders and yet are viewed with suspicion by the mainstream of society because of what they do or where they spend their time or how they work late at night or how they're always in transit or something like that. Yeah. To these folks, an angel appeared. The angel is not named here, but is commonly understood to be Gabriel, who is the same angel who appeared to Zechariah in the temple and the same angel who appeared to Mary in the previous chapter to announce that that she was going to give birth to Jesus. So the angel appears and says, "Don't be afraid," which is what angels always say. Which it must mean angels are super scary. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but it says, "I have. I bring you good news, wonderful, joyous news for all people, and that news is your Savior is born in David's city. He is Christ the Lord." What s- stands out to you in that announcement from the angel?
0: I mean, I think as I read this, I. My couple of thoughts were sort of imagining that, you know, these shepherds in the dark in a sort of quiet but attentive state or trying to be attentive to the extent, you know, it's hard to hard to stay up all night. And really being attentive, attentive towards fairly subtle things in their environment, which I imagine is usually how they would detect yeah. threats. Yeah. And <laughs> then to have the glory of the Lord, yeah. like, shine upon you. Like, just the, the, like, it's shocking. Like, (laughs) I can't even, I can't even imagine the, like, the sensory experience.
1: You're, like, looking in the shadows to see if there's a wolf creeping behind that bush over there.
0: Exactly. You're listening, (laughs) you're listening for little rustles in the wind that sound a little, you know, and then, yeah, like, bam, for real. And then the question that came to me, Bobby, maybe this is a weird question. Why does the, Why does the angel tell them? Like, is the angel just so excited and has to tell someone? I can't not tell somebody. (laughs) I've got this news. (laughs) Who can I tell? Nobody's up. (laughs) Nobody's up. (laughs) Who's up? I know who's up.
1: (laughs) No, it's such an interesting question. Like what is, this story could absolutely be told without the shepherds having any idea that it's happened. And yet Mm -hmm. the angel chooses to announce to this group of people up in the middle of the night out on the margin. Here's what's just happened. Let's hang on to that question because I, I don't have a good answer for it right now. Mm, okay. But I think it's the right question. I think it's a really important question. One thing that I want to note just in the way that I note things is the verb that's used there for bringing good news mm-hmm. is euangelizo, which is the good news. It's like the word for gospel is euangelion. Uh, and so I'm, I'm announcing the gospel to you. And that is also the word that the Caesars used when there was a great victory that they won. Rome had been victorious out, you know, against whoever the enemy was. This was the word, like, we're bringing you good news in that sense. I can't quite think of what a parallel term that we use contemporarily is. Like, it has, like, world-changing implications, and the empire would have used this to announce its own good news. Mm. The words that are chosen here for, to describe Jesus in verse 11, your savior begins at then Christ and then the Lord. The terms that are on the edges, savior and Lord, soter and kurios are also words that the Roman emperor would have used for himself. Mm. And so the, the kurios of the empire, the soter of the empire is Caesar the word that's in the middle, Christ, as you know, is the Greek form of the word Messiah, the anointed mm-hmm. one.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's an
1: explicitly Jewish term. And so it's just, I don't know, it's, it's like yeah. such an interesting little sandwich of titles, like a Roman title, Jewish title, Roman title.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know for sure what to do with that, but I, I just think it's really interesting.
0: Well, okay. So I had another thought that I was like, maybe I'm over reading this, but it kind of fits into what you're saying. So I'll, so I'll, so I'll say it. You know, this, this idea of the glory of the Lord, which, you know, in Hebrew would be kavod Adonai, comes up several places in the Hebrew Bible. One of them being Isaiah 40 that we read, you oh, know, yeah. just a few weeks back. In Isaiah 45, sorry, 40 verse 5, it has this shall appear, and then God speaks. This is the part where I did the weird puppet voices a couple years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, what God proclaims, what God wants Isaiah to proclaim, is everything is temporary except the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so then, like putting that, that's to like all flesh is grass.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: And so then putting that together with what you're like, what we've been drawing out this whole time, like the, the, the empire is so big and powerful and structured. And this baby is so vulnerable and small and chaotic in some ways, like just, you know, by virtue of like the, the birth and the way it unfolds. I like the play between those two things. Yeah. Like that, that, it may seem like the most powerful thing here is this empire, but yes. it's temporary.
1: I love that way of reading it, Amy. And then then the next thing that happens right after that is the great assembly of the heavenly forces. Mm-hmm. I think some translations read like the heavenly host, which always mm-hmm. sounds to me like a maitre d' at, the,
0: at a, a nice restaurant. He's like,
1: hello, would you like some tea? Um, <laughs> I've never met a maitre d' that actually sounds like that, but that's apparently how I do it.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> but this is not that. This is like the heavenly army, right? It's the Army.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so this army shows up. Uh, so the one angel makes this little announcement that you're talking about, and then boom, there's the heavenly army. We don't know how many there are there, but it's like it's it's a bunch. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a bunch.
0: That
1: and they're said to be heavenly forces, so they're like ready, to, you know, ready to. They're armed, it seems like, or they're, they're at least a powerful force. But what they're singing about is glory to God and on earth peace. And so you've got this this army that is more powerful than the Roman army that is singing a song about peace. I don't know that. There's just that contrast. Yeah. I think amplifies what you were just talking about. Yeah, do you have, thought, do you have thoughts about that?
0: I mean, your thoughts were good. <laughs> <laughs> the army no, of I mean, peace. The, yeah, seems- well, that exactly like the, this. Just the contrast in, embedded just in that. Like this is an army, but it's not any way you have ever known an army. This is the army of God, and it is an army that brings peace and not war. Yeah. Which, of course, every army ultimately is wanting to bring peace for their people. like Right. So it just makes it all a little stickier, which is, yeah. I guess, as it should be.
1: I mean, you might hear in the back of your head there the language of Pax Romana, which is exactly like the claim that the Roman Empire had exactly brought peace to its people by having such a powerful army. Mm-hmm. It is interesting then in verse 10 that the first angel says, this is joyous news for all people. So it's expansive, Mm. expansive. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And in verse 14, peace among those whom he favors, which I don't quite know how to Mm. read. The whom he favors there seems like a little bit of a hedge word, (laughs) hedge phrase, but I don't quite know what to do with. Yeah. But this seems to have like, the good news of the Roman Empire's peace is good news for
0: If you're on the right side of that. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And the people who have enough status in the Roman empire that the taxes are flowing toward them and not away from them. Right. It's not good news for the people giving birth to babies in mangers or to shepherds out shepherding their flock that the Roman empire's good news is not for them. Yeah. This good news is exactly for them. And that seems important. And I think that might be one of the reasons at least why the angel makes this announcement to the shepherds. The emperor would have made an announcement of good news to like the Roman assembly, right? The angel makes it to working class folks.
0: Bobby, it's just so I don't know, interesting, compelling, strange to watch this story unfold within within the realm of the empire. Like this is, you know, like the act, the way the world is structured it is largely by exactly those sort of lines of social class and power in the world. And so then to ask the question, what would it look like? And then you have this sort of image from the Torah of what the world should be like. Yes. That is so different than the, what the world is like. Yes. And what, and this is like a mashup. Like what, (laughs) you know, like what happens when that heavenly idea, that heavenly vision of the world like shoves its way through and 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 encounters the structures that humans have set up. It's interesting and strange to yeah. to try to draw out all those all those like the the multiple levels on which everything could be yeah understood.
1: That's so well said Amy and if you go back in chapter 1 to what Mary sings after she is announced has the birth of Jesus announced to her, it's about that. It's about the Toppling of social structures, the lifting up of the oppressed and the tearing down of the powerful, the feeding of those who are hungry and the hunger of those who are fed. It is that the when Jesus is born, the world flips on its head. And so when those two empires, the Empire of Rome and the Empire of God, come into contact, the Empire of Rome is gonna get upended. Mm -hmm. In our own time, what has happened is that the Empire has taken over the Christmas story. And uses it to sell trinkets to people. And it is no longer a revolutionary message. Yeah. It is whatever the opposite of revolutionary is. It yes. is it is the Christmas story so so often is a way of uh, signaling the power of the empire and reinforcing the power of the economy. And that is that is not what this story is about. So the angels give the shepherds a sign. And when I read it, I heard you saying, that's the
0: worst sign ever, <laughs>
1: which you don't say about this. I, I don't know if you say that no, about this No, this is a
0: better, this is a better sign. Oh, okay. Here's this, the sign. I think this is a better sign. The
1: sign that you'll know a baby is born is that you're going to go find a baby who's been born.
0: Or you're going to find a baby who's wrapped up and laying in a manger. Like, that's a good sign.
1: That's a good sign. It's not just a random old baby. It's.
0: Yeah. It's a, a baby. All right. All right. Manger. That's how you know it'll be a savior.
1: I like it. Okay. I like it. I'll pick up then in verse 15. When the angels returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go right now to Bethlehem and see what's happened. Let's confirm what the Lord has revealed to us. They went quickly and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. When they saw this, they reported what they had been told about this child. Everyone who heard it was amazed at what the shepherds told them. Mary committed these things to memory and considered them carefully. The shepherds returned home, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Everything happened just as they had been told. I just want to start first with the uh, shepherds' impulse to go. Like, let's go right now and see this thing. Yeah. Have thoughts about their sense of urgency there? Like, I would have been, like, middle of the night. <laughs> like, like, I'm tired. It's a long day.
0: I mean, my my thought, well, my thought about... Their urgency, just on its own, is they see this as a tr- as a world changing yes thing. Like yes. this is this is not business as usual. And let's see what happens. And also, you know, if they wait too long, maybe the baby won't be in the manger anymore. Like it's a oh, temporary.
1: Right. Your yeah. link
0: on- lasts only you know fifteen oh, I like minutes that. if you don't yeah. use it.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I imagine them like th- <laughs> I'm like, did they take all their flocks with them? Like. they <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Just, yeah, we, I'm not going to worry about that.
1: <laughs> if you believe the manger scenes, the answer is yes, they did take their flocks with them. Although it's usually like one or two like cute little sheep. And not you like figure, flock. <laughs> yeah, but you figure like they probably had like a 100 sheep and that would have been very, so. very crowded in that little stable.
0: Yeah, that's why people didn't like the shepherds showing up with their 100 <laughs> sheep in your manger.
1: Yeah. So when they get there, they report what they have been told, what the angel has said to them. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. We get two different responses. The first response is everybody who heard it, which is- is,
0: Who is everybody?
1: I guess. A horse? The horse and the, I just read my daughter a story about the horse and the ox who are in the stable when baby Jesus was born and they didn't like each other. And then after Jesus was born, they became friends. (laughs) (laughs) That's so lovely. I know, it's, it's a little bit of a random story to be honest with you, but- I mean, here's what I think has happened is, you know, they're in Bethlehem. It's not like an, an enormous place. A baby was yeah. born. It's in the manger. The word yeah. gets around pretty quick. People are yeah. gathered. Yeah. And so that, that it seems as though Mary has not told anybody what, because Gabriel told her in the previous mm-hmm. chapter who this baby was going to be, but everybody's like, oh my goodness. So it seems like Mary has not been sitting around saying, by the way, yeah. y'all, <laughs> my baby is the savior of the world. Yeah.
0: <laughs> People look at you funny if you say that.
1: They do. say that. Yeah. So the shepherds show up and say it yeah. and everybody's amazed. More interesting to me than the, than the people's response, which is like, yeah, you would be amazed is Mary's response. Yes. The CB gives it committed these things to memory and considered them carefully, which sounds like she has flashcards or something like I just, <laughs> <laughs> it sort of takes the joy out of it for me. What is the.
0: Oh, You're the reading NISB. the NRSV. So beautiful. Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her yes. heart. Yes.
1: So much more lovely than memorized some things mm. and put them on flashcards. I know. Can you talk about Mary's response there?
0: I just feel like, again, I feel such a different, like a different pace in her. Yeah. You know, like there's this sort of pace of, of the I don't know if I want to sort of contrast sort of how I imagine time unfolds in the heavenly realm versus on the earth. Maybe that's not what I'm going for here. But like I, I see in this verse from Mary, it's almost like the words, of course, they convey meaning, but they're not just some like shell to get through quickly to convey a meaning. Like we we don't – there might be more in them. And so we yeah. have to hold – we have to hold them in all their possibility and not think that we understand just because we understand the surface of something that, that it's worth, it's worth holding this and letting and being slow about it and not thinking that we really, that we've got the whole thing quickly.
1: I love that way of thinking of her. She is an extraordinary person. And when you go back Mm -hmm. and read, Her response to the angel in chapter one, it just amplifies that sort of her thoughtfulness, her responsiveness, her fearlessness, her carefulness. It's just, she's such an amazing person. Yeah. This, you know, she has known for nine months now that this was going to happen, right? That she was going to give birth to the savior of the world. Gabriel had told her that. She became pregnant miraculously. And so she's, I think, already got confirmation that this is actually what is unfolding. Mm -hmm. But as far as we know, this is the first time she's gotten confirmation from a third party. Like there are now other human beings who are able to say, here's what we know. They don't say it because she told them. Mm -hmm. They say it because the angels told them. And so this is like, external validation corroborating evidence of what you have already known to be true but you couldn't really say to be true maybe you knew it had to be true but you it was just your it was just your truth and now there's a community truth so i think part of that like i think partly she's treasuring this little baby who's going to be the savior of the world and i think partly she's treasuring that now she's hearing from outside of herself the things that she has known inside of herself for a long time now. And, and that is uh, feels special or affirming or, or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I would imagine it would feel affirming and also that it is, it is sort of another step in the unfolding of this, you know, that, that, that other, other people know about it now. Yeah.
1: It's so interesting that if you read this as I I do, as we're still in the middle of the night, then the world has changed Yeah. in the telling of Luke. The the Savior is born, the, the true Lord, the true Savior, the true Christ is born. And the people who know about it are this unwed mother and her betrothed the people who are up in the middle of the night because they're curious enough about what's happening in the manger and a group of shepherds. And as far as the empire knows, all that's happening is there is a census going on and people are registering for their taxes. Yeah. And they don't, they don't understand that things are no longer the same. There's just something really important about that. The, the It's not exactly that it's subtle because like the heavenly just showed up like it was not at all subtle but it was only for certain people who are not the people that normally receive such kinds of news yeah
0: yeah and it's the empire is not attuned in this way to be able to you know be present to this kind of thing happening they they have their own they have their own plan and they're attuned to their plan and yeah yeah they have no idea
1: So, Amy, that brings us to the part of the podcast where we try to think about how this text connects with our own time and place. I realize asking you to, like, sum up the significance of the Christmas story is probably a a big ask, but what are you thinking about today?
0: Bobby, what I'm thinking about is this story in the Talmud, this Midrashic story, also about the Messiah, and so I'm going to tell you this little story and then I'll, and I'll tell you how I, they're connecting, at least in my mind at this moment. So in the story, this, um, this person encounters Elijah and asks Elijah, you know, like where, who's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? When are they going to come? And Elijah says, the Messiah is among the lepers who are sitting outside the temple. Mm. But there are a whole bunch of lepers sitting outside the temple. So the guy's like, which one? (laughs) And Elijah says, the Messiah, most of the lepers take off all of their bandages at once and then replace all of their bandages. But the Messiah needs to be ready to hop into action at any moment. And so he always takes off one bandage and replaces that bandage and then takes Mm. off another bandage and replaces that bandage. Okay, fine. So the guy goes to the lepers who are outside the temple and sees the one man who's doing this and says, you're the Messiah. And the guy says, yeah. And he says, when are you coming? And he says, today. And so the guy's super excited and thinks, you know, and says the Messiah is coming today and the Messiah doesn't. And so he's very distressed and he goes back to Elijah. And Elijah says, well, he was, he was citing this particular Psalm, which is, basically today if you will hear my voice like Mm. if you are ready which is basically saying I'm ready when you're ready (laughs) oh yeah and the reason I think that story came into my mind is is this like holding this sort of juxtaposition of like the urgency that the shepherds feel and that a lot of people when they hear this news are feeling and also that this sort of like slowly unfolding truth that mary is holding and just sort of letting it move at its own pace and the idea that that it takes something from us to be able to receive the messiah mm. like that why is it these people who get the information and not the bankers and the lawyers is it because they're evil and these people are good not necessarily but you have to be you have you have to be ready to hear like you have yeah. to be open to it or it's kind of a waste of everybody's time. So I'm just thinking about all the forces moving in this text that are recognizing like the contradictions that are sort of built into the system and some of which are simultaneously true and what it really means to be in to be ready to hear. Yeah for the people in this story and for us.
1: I really love that, Amy, and that, you know, the angel, when the angel shows up in verse 11, he says, your savior is born today in David's city. So even that, like, the today-ness from that Talmud story is here, too. If you are ready to hear it, here it mm-hmm. is. And we end the story with a few people who are ready to hear it and an empire full of people, many of whom have not yet heard it. Mm-hmm. I love that way of thinking about it. And the, I mean, you know, my head is always going to the sort of, here is a story that is in contrast to the ways of the empire. And we get the statements at the beginning about Caesar and Quirinius and Herod. And at the end of the story, the world has changed. And the only people who know it mm. are Mary and a group of people who happen to be up in the middle of the night and some shepherds. And that contrast the army of heaven, which is an army of peace, the army of Caesar, which is an army of war, good news for some people, good news for all people. Like that contrast is really important to me. And that Christmas is kind of the point where that contrast comes like in Christian belief, like that's the moment of incarnation. So Christmas is the moment that the world changes. And so in that sense, Christmas is is a revolution but not everybody knows that the revolution has happened. What I really love about what we've been sort of unfolding today and the way that you're thinking about it is, you know, the only people who really get announcements that the world has changed are Mary and the shepherds. Yeah. Every single other person has to hear the testimony of Mary and the shepherds and they have to be open To the possibility that it is true when you're talking about that sort of orientation to the world. And so this story is about trusting the experience of a little, I mean, 14-year-old pregnant unwed mother Mm. and some shepherds living on the margins of society who say they saw some angels and believing that the world can no longer be the same. When we think about the people that I tend to trust and the people that I look to for understanding about the way the world is, it's typically not those people. And so this story challenges me if you if you want to see the good news, if you want to see the Messiah in the world pay attention to what's happening in your own heart, but also to who who you're listening to mm-hmm. and where the where the good news that you hear is coming from.
0: Yeah, because it's a pretty crazy story. Someone crazy has to be story. open to a pretty crazy story from a pretty push to the margins person.
1: Yeah. But when Linus tells it, it sounds so sweet.
0: <laughs> <I> know, it <laughs> does. You
1: miss the revolutionary character it of
0: does. it. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, Amy. Well, thanks for this conversation about this uh, crazy but really important text.
0: Yeah. Hey, Merry Christmas.
1: Hey, thanks.
0: Oh, oh, oh. No, oh, sorry. That was a commercial. <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. <laughs> oh no, we just
0: imperialized. <laughs> I had to re-record the whole podcast.
1: <laughs> Amy, next time we'll be back on the narrative lectionary cycle and we're stepping into the gospel of Mark.
0: The and spookiest gospel. The... <laughs> That's
1: such a funny <laughs> adjective. I, yeah,
0: <laughs> sp- no, sp- I look forward sp- to it.
1: We'll be in Mark chapter one, verses one through 20. I will see you then.
0: See you then.
1: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash podcast for details.
0: Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible.
1: Join us next time when we'll start our discussion of the Gospel of Mark with Mark 1, to 1-20. Until then, keep on digging.